0: Good morning again. We're really glad that you could be here with us. If we could just please turn together to Isaiah 53. We're actually going to begin in Isaiah 52, verses 13, and we're going to read all the way to Isaiah 53, verse 7. But the focus of the sermon will be in verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 53. Uh, Also, for the students, I know it's finals week. We're praying for you. You probably won't be here next week because you'll be at home. Good luck. With that, let's read Let's read the word. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you that we can gather here. Please bless us as we look into your word. Help me, Lord, as I preach, to be clear, to be humble. But, Lord, that your name would be glorified among us. As we look into the scriptures, may we see the Lamb of God. When we fix our eyes on Jesus and on Jesus alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we started our Advent series. Uh, I was going to call it a Christmas series, but it really is an Advent series. Uh, We started last week with looking at what's referred to as the Proto-Evangelion in Genesis, done by our ruling elder, Daniel Thies. Next week, we're going to look at Jesus as the son of David. Then that will be preached by Brian Aldrich, one of our elders. But this week, we're looking at Isaiah 53. And what we're focusing on is Jesus as the Lamb of God. On Christmas Eve, Luke will preach on the righteous branch. And so that's our series. We're looking at Jesus. And we're looking at Jesus as we look through Advent and the different pictures or impressions of Jesus throughout the Old Testament and its fulfillment in the work of Christ and in his birth. This week, again, we're looking at Isaiah. Isaiah is a big book. It's a large book. It has a lot of things. It has judgments. It has songs. It has interesting situations. At one point, like... The shadow goes back seven steps. There's a lot of stuff that's happening in Isaiah. There's a siege. If you have time, read Isaiah. The first 40 chapters of Isaiah deal particularly with judgment. They deal with particularly with judgment that's coming to the house of Israel and to the nations around them because of their sin. But after chapter 40, chapter 40 through chapter 66 deals with the restoration and the promises to the covenant people. That's why Isaiah 66 ends with the new Jerusalem. Throughout these chapters, through 40 through 66, something happens. There's these songs that are interjected into the prophecies. These are usually referred to as servant songs, right? And the songs paint a picture of God's chosen servant who will come to the aid of his people. It shows, and for example, in Isaiah 42, God's chosen servant who will judge rightly as the true king. Uh, it says in Isaiah 49, God's chosen servant who will come as a true prophet to guide God's people. And here in Isaiah 52 and 53, that's God's chosen servant will come as a true priest who will cleanse the people from their sins. These pictures of a servant who brings a true restoration to the covenant people serves, as we will see, as pictures of Jesus, the true prophet, the true priest and the true king. Today's passage focuses on the messianic picture of the true priest that is coming for the work of purification, Jesus as the lamb of God and what he does as the mediator of the covenant. Like we talked about last week, what we see here is impressions of what Jesus was going to do. But looking at this passage and the rest of scripture, we are going to look at what it means that Jesus is the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And we're gonna do this in three points. My sermons are usually three points. I don't do four, I don't do five. You need a certain level of experience and maturity to do that, and I'm still learning. Uh, Three points, first, as the Lamb of God, the mission of Christ was that of redemption. Second, as the Lamb of God, Christ must be afflicted. And third, As the Lamb of God, his meekness was his victory. And that's what we begin. In verse 6, it says, and I'll read it again. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As the Lamb of God, the mission of Christ was one of redemption Last week, we looked at God's promises to the first sinners, and we continue again this week by looking at the issue of sin again. The passage we are looking at recognizes something that was not only true in the garden, but for us as well. We, we, all like sheep, have gone astray. When the Bible talks about sheep that gone astray, it's not talking about when your kid gets lost in the supermarket. I know that doesn't happen anymore, but when I was a kid, I got lost at a supermarket a lot. This is a side story, I didn't have it written. One time, my mom left me. <laughs> and she had to come back, she was very upset. But that was, this was really my fault. It was, a—I think it was Ultra Foods, and I just walked around, I used to love doing that. That's not what this is talking about, right? Like in some ways, for me, it is applicable. I was quite rebellious. When the Bible talks about sheep that have gone astray, it's not just saying that they got lost like a kid in the supermarket. It does have some similarities. For example, in the parables of the lost coin and the lost sheep, those things get lost. The, per- the owner finds them and brings them back. But the closer idea here is in that final parable in the, in the group of three, where it's the prodigal son who gets lost to go their own way, to choose their own path it's not as if all of us accidentally got lost and we are shocked at the consequences. Rather, the testimony of scripture is that we have gone astray. We have chosen to leave our shepherd as an entire species. We have turned our noses up at God and chosen our own way. But you might say to me, how have I turned my nose up at God? That is why the second part of that verse is helpful. It is not just that we have gone astray, but it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We all have chosen to go our own way. We have chosen to go our own way. We as a species, since our first parents, have chosen to define ourselves by our own wisdom. We think that we are in control. We want to rule. Uh, When I was a kid, you're, you're top dog, right? You're the grand puba, the big hibachi, if you will. We love our own way. People love their own way so much that throughout history, people worship idols, not because idols are real, but because idols give the impression that you can control them, but they end up controlling you. We might scoff at the idea of worshiping an image made of wood and of stone, but idols are objects of worship that provide the worshiper with something which they desire or long for, to control and to have. We worship power and we worship influence. Just look at any social media channel or news channel. We worship beauty and youth because by them we think that we can escape the pains of death. We worship money because we think that by it we can find security and safety in this life. We worship intelligence because we think that by it we can become masters over our own destiny. We worship others in relationship because if people would love us, we would feel worthwhile and important. And the list goes on and on. We have chosen the worship of created things rather than the creator. That's what Romans 1 talks about. And it is in our worship where our idols are revealed, where we see that we have chosen to go our own way. Modern idols or ancient idols can look like a variety of things, but in the end, they never satisfy. If you have money, you never have enough. If you want relationships, they're never good enough. Idols don't satisfy. And it is in this idol worship where we see that we all like sheep have gone astray. We all have chosen our own way. When we go our own way and worship our choices and our life, the Bible calls that iniquity. That iniquity needs to be resolved. That sin, that iniquity separates us from God because sin separates us from God. There is a price and a cost. How does God deal with that iniquity? The passage again provides a clarification. That iniquity was laid on someone else. On the Lamb of God who comes to take away sin. The Lamb of God came to seek and to save what was lost. We, Because we chose our own way, we're unable to seek God. We were unable to save ourselves. And yet, while we were still sinners, God sent his one and only son into the world to die for sinners. Because we have gone astray and we have chosen to go astray from God, he sent his one and only son to bring redemption. The mission of the Lamb of God was redemption. Who is the only redeemer of God's elect? Jesus, the Lamb of God upon whom was laid our sin, in whom alone we rest. You know, as we talk about desires and demands, we may be tempted to think that we don't have desires and, or shouldn't have longings. The question I usually ask myself is, is it a sin to enjoy a hamburger? It is not a sin to enjoy a hamburger. All right. So it's important here to offer. Everything's good in moderation, though. Don't go out and constantly eat hamburgers. That's not what I'm saying either. But if you want to, that's okay. I mean, I don't know. There is a difference in what makes us humans, the desires that we have, and when those desires are disordered or twisted. For example, we have physical needs. We have a need for food, and we have a need for sleep. Wanting to eat is not a sin, but gluttony is. What is the difference? What is the difference between a normal and healthy desire? It's when it becomes distorted and twisted by our sinful hearts. It is not what enters the body of a man that makes him unclean, but what exits it. What we say and what we do and our desires and what it does our hearts do is it twists these normal desires and makes them into disordered desires. That is how idols come about. For example, wanting to be loved by others is not wrong. We are creatures that were meant to be in community and in loving relationships, but demanding love from others in a particular way is wrong. Why is it important to make the distinction? Because when the Bible talks about sin, it involves desires, but not all desires are inherently sinful. It is our hearts which can twist these desires and actions in a manner that is sinful. We twist our desires into disordered desires. The way that confession talks about it is sin always has a guilt and a pollution. There's a corruption in our nature. That's why we need the mediator of the covenant, Jesus. The Bible does not teach us about the hatred of all things physical and earthly. It does, however, speak that we become blinded by our desires and we are actively lying to ourselves about it. That is why Jesus came, because we are unable to see past it. And that's why we rest in him alone for grace. And in the gospel, we see the impact of our disordered desires and demands. For those who rest in Christ alone, there is both the covering of the guilt of their sins and idolatry, and then the growth in the ordering of ourselves and our desires, dealing with sin's pollution. So we are made more and more into the image of our Redeemer. The mission of the Lamb of God was redemption. Second, as the Lamb of God, Christ's affliction was necessary. The verses continue expounding in few words, but it's profound. He says, he was afflicted and he was oppressed. Like a lamb led to the slaughter. The consequence that Christ faced to deal with the iniquity of those he came to redeem was affliction. The afflictions of Christ were not just those which he faced at the cross, but in, in the entirety of his whole life. This is often referred to as Christ's humiliation. Um, I see Luke smiling because it, it is a really wonderful theological point. But what are those afflictions and humiliations? He, although being the eternally begotten Son of God, humbled himself in taking to himself a human nature. He was not only humbled in taking to himself a human nature, but being born into a low estate. He wasn't born in a mansion or in a palace. He was born in a manger. He had to run away from his homeland to another. He couldn't go back to the land where he was born. And even when he could return, he had to return to the outskirts of it in Galilee. He knew what it was like to be hungry, to be tired. Jesus knew what it was like to be a person. He was fully God and he was fully man. Hebrews 2.17 puts it like this, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus, the eternally begotten Son of God, took to himself a human nature, being born in a humble condition, being born under the law and perfectly fulfilling it, and dealt with difficulties his entire life. His humiliation and affliction were not only in the whole of his life, but even in his death. He was betrayed by Judas, one of his closest friends. He was abandoned by the rest of his disciples. He faced the judgment and oppression of both civil and religious authorities, condemned unjustly to death because of jealousy, and because of the fear of Pilate. He was tormented by his persecutors. And on the cross, he bore and felt the wrath of God for sin to the point where he cried out, my father, my father, I'm sorry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He bore our iniquity on the cross, but his whole life was one of dealing with the consequences of our actions. He did no wrong and yet subjected himself to a low estate, hunger, to sleeplessness, to betrayal, to misunderstanding, to being unjustly condemned. And on the cross, the wrath of God was laid on his shoulders. Our straying and our iniquity has consequences. Jesus bore the iniquity for our sins and for the sins of his elect. Our actions have consequences. And the eternal consequences of those sins were laid on Jesus. As the Lamb of God Christ was afflicted because he made a payment for our sins to satisfy the wrath of God. Christ came to die for sinners. That's the picture that we see in Isaiah of the Lamb of God. If Christ came to die for sinners and to save us from our own hard-hearted and arrogant ways, how do we become partakers of the redemption that was purchased by Christ? It was our sin that demanded justice, Christ came and paid that debt. Our rebellion is covered by his obedience. The exchange then becomes our sin for his righteousness. So how do we become partakers of that? The Holy Spirit, as it talks about in the scriptures, applies a redemption to our hearts by working faith in us. Oftentimes, we are tempted, especially when we see the grief and severity of our sins. And when it begins to dawn on us the seriousness of what we have done, we want to fix it ourselves. However, all that is required of us is to trust in Christ and rest in him alone. The Holy Spirit takes the preaching and the reading of the word and works faith in our hearts. As we see the grievousness of our own sin, we see the beauty of his mercy and we trust in Christ alone for salvation. Why make this point here? Why not say, you should feel bad about your sins? Don't get me wrong, I want you to be grieved over your sins, but I want you to see the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus all the more. Our call is to trust and to rest in Christ alone, as he's freely offered in the gospel. The wrath of God was poured on Christ. Oftentimes in our Christian walk, we want practical steps on what to do. And there is room for practical advice. Practical advice is good. I'm a particularly practical person, actually. But there is no 10-step program for faith. Jesus does the work of salvation. He is the mediator of the covenant. The call of the gospel is one of trust. I want you to all see and grieve over your sins. I want to grieve and see my sins more clearly but I want you to see the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who was a man of sorrow for the sake of his elect, who came to die for sinners. Christ is freely offered to us in the gospel. We can know this on a cognitive level and yet miss the implication to our hearts. We do not need a list of accomplishments before we rest in Christ. We rest in Christ by his grace and his mercy he was afflicted for us. So as the Lamb of God, Christ's mission was one of redemption. As the Lamb of God, Christ had to be afflicted. And as the Lamb of God, the meekness of Christ was his victory. We have talked about Christ as the only Redeemer of God's elect. We talked about the suffering and afflictions of that Redeemer. Now we end up by talking about the manner of that Redeemer. And that's in the text as well. He talks about He was afflicted and oppressed, yet he opened not his mouth as a lamb led to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers. Why make that picture here? In Hebrew, that's actually called parallelism. Nobody's ever going to ask you this again, but it's parallelism. He's repeating things to make a point. Why did Jesus not open his mouth? Why emphasize that in Isaiah? Why emphasize that as he's going before Pilate and Herod? The Lamb of God does not open his mouth. Because the emphasis is his meekness so what is meek this is a word used to describe someone who is gentle humble and kind in modern context usually we take meek people as an offense we take people we think that meek people are those who lack confidence or are too shy meekness to us is those people that are doormats and everybody just takes advantage of, advantage of them but meekness in the Bible is not necessarily about shyness or being quiet, or not having confidence. Meekness in the Bible are those people that fully depend on God rather than their own strength. A meek person is a person who does not wield their power and influence to get what they want, but they wait in humble submission to God. A more formal quote by a theologian says this, meekness is an unassuming humility that rests in God and renounces self-effort to relieve one's oppression and to achieve one's desires. Selflessness and submission are what, those are the traits of what meekness is. A meek person knows their place before God and understands their dependence on him. Jesus is meek. That's what we see in the Gospels. For example, on the night he was betrayed, as he was praying, what does he pray? Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Even as they come to arrest him and one of his apostles or disciples at this point pulls out a sword and cuts off another one's ear. What does Jesus say? Put your sword back in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? that it must be so. Jesus could have easily avoided all affliction and all oppression, but he willingly submitted himself to the will of the Father. That is meekness. In in that way, he is completely the opposite of the problem that we began with. We, all like sheep, have gone astray. All have turned our noses up at God, and Christ, the Lamb of God, submitted himself to God the Father, and in meekness, even to the point of death, so that those rebels who turned and went astray, might be called the children of God. Who is the only redeemer of God's elect? Jesus. There is victory in meekness. The Beatitudes tell us the meek shall inherit the earth. We see that too in the book of Philippians. I have to talk about Philippians sometime when I'm preaching, right? And it says this, and being found, this is Philippians 2, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Meekness was his victory because he submitted himself to God the Father. Shocking, verse 9, is, therefore, God has highly exalted him. It was his meekness and his submission to God the Father. Where was the victory? It was not in myriads of angels descending and invading. It is not with a mighty army, but in humble and patient submission to God. Christ succeeds where our first father fails. Where Adam demands his own way, Christ submits to the will of God the Father. That was the victory. It was entrusting of God where we saw the victory of Christ because although he was afflicted and oppressed and bore the wrath of God and he remained in the grave for three days, he rose again. He was resurrected and ascended into heaven where he makes continual intercession for us. We can submit to God in the midst of the storms and circumstances of life. This Advent, we're looking at the pictures of Christ. I went over the sermon with one of my friends, and they said, I thought it was about Christmas. And I said, it gets to it. This is where it gets to it. We see the pictures of Christ throughout scripture. Here, we see the Lamb of God, who by his sacrifice satisfies the wrath of God due to us for sin. That's why Jesus had to come. He was afflicted and oppressed for the sake of the elect, And we are given peace by the grace of God, by the Holy Spirit working faith in our hearts that we may trust in him alone. Meekness, I want to be clear, meekness is not a prerequisite to be saved. You can hear what I'm saying and think to yourself like, that's what I need, I need to be more meek. There are no prerequisites to salvation. God chooses to save, not because of anything good found in us, but because of his merciful and gracious sovereignty. When the word is preached or read, the Holy Spirit works in such a way where our hearts come alive and he changes us. God is the one who saves. And if you are saved, meekness is not a prerequisite, but it is a product of Christ working in our lives. If meekness was a prerequisite for salvation, we can can say to ourselves, God save me because I'm so humble. God save me because I'm so humble and great, but that's not it, right? You can hear the sermon and think to yourself, you know who really needs meekness? I'm going to send this sermon to somebody else. <laughs> or you can think to yourself, great, another thing to do. Submission to God in the midst of circumstances is not a burden. It's a freedom. We are not in control. The whole world doesn't depend on us and what we do and what we say. There is a God who sustains the entirety of creation and knows the hair on our heads. Submission to God in the midst of circumstances is not a burden, it's a freedom. It's not fatalism that says we have no options and we're just carried along by the winds of fate. It is also not taking people as the ultimate standard of reality where we're masters of our own world and destiny. There are a lot of things that happen in life. Some are consequences of our actions, some which are the consequences of the actions of others. Some things just happen and God is in control. What we know is God is sovereign and he calls us to trust him. That is our response regardless of the events of life. That's the victory. That doesn't mean you do nothing. Jesus prayed and walked and preached and ate and hung out with his friends. But it does also mean that you are not in control. God is. We do our best to be faithful with what God has given us because he is in control. So whether it's disease or political turmoil or a difficult family member or problems at work or frustrations with life, or disillusionment about the future, and a myriad of all the all the other things which invade our thoughts, even now as we're sitting here, we can cast all our cares upon God because he cares for us. How do we know that God cares for us? Because while we were still sinners, he sent His one and only Son. When we went astray, the Lamb of God obeyed and He came to die for sinners. The Lamb of God was victorious in His meekness. Jesus, the Lamb of God, His mission was redemption. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, had to suffer to satisfy the wrath due to us for sin. And Jesus, as the Lamb of God, was victorious in His humble submission to God the Father, showing His meekness. Let us then today behold the Lamb of God. When we gather on Sunday mornings, we worship, and though we may not see him with our eyes, we see him with eyes of faith, and someday faith will be made sight. Who came to die for sinners like us? Who was born in a manger, born of a woman under the law? Jesus, and we trust in him alone to rest in Jesus, the only mediator of the covenant of salvation. We trust in Christ alone. In him alone are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Who is the only redeemer of God's elect? Jesus. Let us go then to Christ this morning and behold the Lamb of God. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this time. We come to you, we who are oftentimes tempted to go astray, who fix our eyes on created things and circumstances. Help us, Lord, to fix our eyes on you, to look to you, to trust in you alone. Help us to worship. Help us as we go throughout our weeks. Help us as we... Gathered together for Christmas that we may see you more clearly, that we may grab a hold of you, that we come to you hungry and needy and weary. But you are our King. You are the one who came to give us the words of God, our prophet. And you are our priest who satisfies the wrath of God. Thank you, Lord. We look to you, help us to behold you more clearly and not to trust in ourselves, but to trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.